but whether they want to hear it or not, the Lord always sends forth watchmen to warn. He always does. He never does anything till he warns. The gospel of accommodation. Now, to accommodate means to adapt. It means to make suitable or acceptable. It also means to adjust, to make something very convenient. It means to yield to the desires of others to placate them. Now, you put that together, and I'm talking about a gospel that's been invented in hell and is now being propagated all of the United States. It's a suitable, acceptable, convenient a gospel that has yielded to the desires and the weakness of sinful men. I call it the gospel of accommodation because it's adapting and adjusting the gospel uh, to appease and attract sinners. This gospel accommodation is primarily an American cultural invention to ease our lifestyle. It appeals primarily to white America, rich and prosperous. It was invented out of hell itself. This new gospel is sweeping the America and the nation is influencing ministers of every denomination. It's giving birth to mega churches. Some of the largest churches in the United States are involved in this gospel. It's a non-confronting, convenient gospel adapted. It is spoon-fed to the congregation by uh, skits, humorous skits and drama, short, non-abrasive, 20-minute messages, and it's all called seeker-friendly. The seeker-friendly churches. And one of these days, there may be somebody move into the city and try to bring one of these churches right into New York City. They are springing up now overnight, and suddenly thousands attend. This new gospel is being propagated by bright young, intelligent, ta talented ministers. They, they came upon a formula by which you can go into any city, in any town, and almost overnight build a mega church. And as I understand this formula, you begin by going into the community with your workers and you pull the community to find out what the sinner found offensive about attending church. Well, why don't you attend church? And what was offensive about it? And what would it... What would we have to do to bring you back into the church? What would make you comfortable? What would you like to see? You don't like choirs? We'll do away with choirs. You, you, you don't like suits in church? You come the way you choose? Uh, just tell us what you want. And they survey the community and then sit in there uh, with their computers and in their conference rooms and they design a program that will make it comfortable for the sinner and make it friendly for, they rather than call it sinner friendly, they would call it seeker friendly and try to attract them to come into the house of God. It's becoming the most prosperous, most flourishing of all religious movements in the history of America. The churches are run like corporations, the pastor's the CEO, chief executive officer. And it's big business. And this formula has now been cleverly packaged and it is now being pushed in seminars all over the United States. It sounds good. What they say sounds very good. It sounds spiritual in its goals. It sounds like Jesus is the central theme. And folks, I'm not going to name any names because I'm not talking about the character of these men. I'm talking about the gospel that they preach. I am here to remind you that Paul the Apostle warned of the coming of another gospel which we have not preached. 
He said there is coming another gospel that's going to preach another Jesus. You'll hear his name. It'll sound sweet, but it's not the Jesus that I preach, Paul said. It's not the true Jesus. Paul goes on, or Paul was amazed. He said that you were so removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. Folks, listen to me. There is in the land right now, with thousands of people sitting under another gospel, another Jesus, being preached by ministers who have lost the touch of God and been transformed into angels of light, to common to deceive, if possible, even the elect of God. Paul goes to warn the church, it's really not another gospel, but it's a perversion of the gospel of Christ, which is really not another, Paul said, but there be some that trouble you and pervert or change the gospel of Christ. He said, they're going to change it. They're going to accommodate the sinner. They're going to accommodate their pleasures. They're going to accommodate all of their needs. And they're going to design a gospel with their own Christ, with their own doctrine. Then this awful warning from Paul. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, but that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Folks, I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said it. If anybody preached another gospel, what you've heard, if anyone preached anything but the crucified Christ, if anyone preached anything that appeases man in his sin, that's not the gospel you heard from me, Paul said, and anyone preaches another, let him be accursed. And he said it's going to be dangerous because it's going to come from seemingly pious, sincere ministers. That's what made the doctrine called antinomianism so dangerous because it was in the hands of some very uh, fine, uh, good-living men like Dr. Crisp, who was one of the founders of that anti-law movement back during the Puritan age. Anti-law, they, they cast aside the burden of the law and the reason it was so accepted because the men who preached it seemed to be so pious. The reality of the nature of the things we're going to be covering uh, I wanted you to get a taste of David Wilkerson. I wanted you to get a taste of one of his fiery sermons. Uh, uh, this guy was so incredible. He was so powerful in his methodology. He had eyes to see. He had ears to hear. And I'm telling you something. You go back into the late 60s and early 70s, and he was saying things that people told him he was nuts. He was crazy. He was insane. He made outrageous claims. For example, there is coming a time where the church will normalize homosexuality. There's coming a time even when there will be church leaders who are embracing the act itself that will be leading congregations. And he said this in the early 70s, and they said he was insane. And look at today. What I'm telling you is... David Wilkerson, he saw what was happening to the church, one of the most powerful, influential evangelists that has ever graced this land. He saw something. He saw that the churches had been penetrated by the evil one. He saw what was going on, that they now the new blueprint, the new blueprint of the church is not this. We need to look at corporate America. We need, if we are going to be successful as a community, we need to do what they're doing, what the world's doing to become successful, to bring in profits, 
This is the blueprint for us today. And he saw it happening. He saw the seminaries kicking the pastors out one after another, sending him through, just, just pumping them out, preaching this message, utilizing this formula. He saw something. I don't know if you caught it. I ended it right there at that, at that portion. He saw antinomianism creeping into the church. He saw it with his eyes where there was this loathing, this, this hatred for the law of God that had come in. These things are real. I'm going to tell you something. The things that David Wilkerson saw, that he saw beginning to happen in the church, these seeds that were being planted, they have come full circle today. In their entirety, it has been totally brought to fruition one thing I can tell you, Satan has crept in, and what he has done is he's gotten into the innermost sanctum of the faith, and he's been ripping out the vital organs, the vital organs of the faith. And the worst part of this is the church doesn't know it. They have no idea what is happening to them. They have no idea what they're really following. Another gospel to them, it's business, pun intended, business as usual. The gospel, hey, it's being preached. We're telling people about Jesus. Everything's wonderful. The only problem is, is it's not the gospel of this book. It's not the gospel that the first century Jewish people, these Jewish believers, the Jewish disciples that went out and transformed the world, turned it upside down. It is not that gospel. But I'm going to tell you, it sounds good. And it feels even better. And it comes packaged so beautifully with all this, this array of wonderful, useful terminology. Terminology that we love to bathe ourselves in, like love and grace and liberty and freedom. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Honestly, how could something that seems so right... They're preaching Christ and him crucified. How can something seem so right be so wrong? The answer to that question is when you investigate the gospel, the grace message that is being preached today. And when you start to, I always like to use the analogy, you start to peel back the layers. You start to discover something. It's not as biblical as it's being portrayed I want you to understand something. When you understand the goals of our enemy, when you understand his objective, that's when things come into focus. That's when things really come into focus. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, spends a lot of time talking about the objectives of Asatan. It spends a lot of time with all of these warnings. Yeshua's ministry was filled with the warnings of Hasatan's objectives. And last or for week one, I believe, we talked about this. What is Satan's primary objective? Number one goal on his list to do. And that is to, in fact, target the grace message. If we can get the clicker to click. Thank you. Um, that's the grace message. This is target number one. And I'm going to tell you, this is the kill shot. Because if you at all, in any way, alter the true gospel, even a little bit, 
just a tiny bit, I promise you it will result in 100% fatality. 100% fatality. It's going for the jugular. There will be no survivors. I'm telling you that right now. And the enemy knows this. So what does he do? He targets the grace message. <clears throat> but he's crafty. He doesn't do away with it. He redesigns, he redesigns it just ever so slightly. And this new package that he has that is beautiful, that glitters with light, well, it's more appealing to the masses. His version's more acceptable. It's not as offensive. It's very inclusive of everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You can come. Come as you are. He doesn't need you to change. This is this gospel that is being preached. Just come and enjoy the service. God loves you. This is what we are dealing with today. Well, in our message uh, today, we are going to be covering the inner core of this pseudo-gospel, which is not God's mercy but it's the devil's grace. And the way I want to do this is I actually want to take you back into church history. And uh, I want to show you some things that were said in the first century, things coming straight out of the word. And I want to show you something that happened in the second century that was a pivotal moment in time that has everything to do with what we're talking about here. Uh, with that said, I want to take you back to Jude Something we covered in week one, Jude chapter one, verse three. If we can, I don't know what's going on here. Jude chapter one, verse three, and we read, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the faith. This is interesting because as I mentioned before in week one, here Jude comes to the, he comes to the front lines, he cries out, he sounds the alarm to his brothers and sisters in the faith and the cry is we're under attack. We are under attack. The enemy is attacking us and the call is to rise up, go and defend the faith. Earnestly rise up and defend the faith. And in verse 4, we read the following. And this is what it says. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, if we can click this next slide, who turn the grace of God into lewdness. So this attack that Yehuda saw coming that was within the church, it was an attack on the grace of Message. It was attack on the gospel. And the men were creeping in unnoticed. They were sitting right next to us. And they were defiling this beautiful and holy message. So going all the way back to the first century, we find the first thing. I mean, this is biblical. The first thing that Satan did, he went for the kill shot. He went for the jugular. He went after the grace message itself. The devil sent his men into the church. And they appear to say all the right things. They appear to look the part because they have sheep's clothing on. They raise their hands. They bow their head. They pray. They speak the name of Yeshua. They speak the name of Jesus. But inside, they are ravenous wolves. They are ravenous wolves who have come in as spiritual anesthesiologists to literally deaden, to kill the pain of godly 
sorrow. So that people don't turn. So that they don't turn and repent, which leads to salvation. And through their infectious and attractive rhetoric, they appeal to the masses. More and more believers continue to wallow in their sin while they profess. All the while, they're under grace. And I'm telling you, it's the great delusion. I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. And this is what we read, if we can click that. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free... Go ahead and click the next slide here. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. What an amazing statement. Peter, a Jew, speaking to his Jewish brother and says, we're free. We're under liberty. But we need to be careful because something is happening. Peter saw the exact same thing that Jude saw. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. In other words, he's saying, don't you dare go out. Don't you dare go out and justify your sins, your desires of your heart, your actions, simply by putting the cloak on that says, well, wait a second. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I'm under grace, so I can do this. This is perfectly permissible. doesn't matter what it says in the law, the Tanakh, the Torah, This is okay because now we're under grace. And I'm telling you something. This is the grace that the devil is offering the church today. A grace that tells you, you don't need to listen to the law of God. In fact, it goes so so far as to say, if you who are under grace, if you do not reject the law entirely, you cannot be under grace. You cannot continue under grace. You must reject it. I really believe this when I say this to you. The greatest deception this world has ever known is this message, is what we see, is what David Wilkerson saw. It's what we see happening in the church today, many of the churches. He's gone out, the enemy has gone out, and he's selling this. And the church is buying it. They're buying all of it, but we should understand why. And you think, well, how is this possible? They're preaching Jesus. This is just too, this is too crazy. It doesn't even make any sense. It makes perfect sense. You know what the easiest marketing tactic is? You don't have to be elaborate in your marketing scheme. It's really simple. Go sell something to someone who needs it, who wants it, who desires it. In other words, what I'm saying to you is Satan comes up and he starts to speak to your flesh and tell you, you can do this, you can do that. You're perfectly okay doing this. Go ahead, embrace it. Eat of the fruit of the tree. You shall surely not die. I'm going to tell you right now, your flesh will consume and lap up every last word that he sells you. In, as he speaks to your heart, as he speaks to your mind, this is what's going to happen. With that said, I, I want to take you to the second century Something monumental took place. Um, And actually, let me say this, just so you feel the weight of it. In the second century, there was an unprecedented attack unleashed upon the faith. Unprecedented. Like the world had never seen before. There was a particular move, or if you would call it a spirit, that went forth 
and it wreaked havoc on the church, so much so that men were scrambling to combat it. Godly, righteous men, men like Jude, men like Peter, men like Paul, they were going forth to the front line to war against it. The most disturbing thing about this particular spiritual move is that it is moving today in full force in the church. And as we go through this, it is going to send chills down your spine. With that said, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Marcion. Marcion of Sinope, he was actually a gentleman who was born in the first century. Uh, he, he actually lived well into the, into the second century. He was said to be a wealthy ship owner. And uh, he is the son of a, this is what's interesting, he was the son of a Christian uh, bishop. And so you need to understand something about Marcion. He comes from the faith background. Men of faith. He comes from that background. Uh, so he has this uh, heritage in him, if you will. But as Marcion continues on in his life, something happens. Uh, he all of a sudden gets excommunicated. All right? He gets taken out. The godly men, men who fear God, started coming out all over the place. And they were crying out in their communities, this man is a heretic. Stay away from him. His name spread like wildfire. In fact, his doctrine spread like wildfire. However, having said that, I do want to emphasize something about Marcion. Marcion did not start out as a heretic. Okay? Actually, according to history, we find it was the exact opposite. And, and we know this from not just the fact that, okay, he came from Christian parents. That's not the truth. It goes beyond that where he himself was established as a man, we're told from Tertullian in church history that he actually walked the walk of faith, that he knew truth. And let me read to you this portion. I'm going to read to you from Tertullian. This is church history. And this is what Tertullian, in commenting on Marcion, this is what he says. That portion of it, meaning the truth, which we alone receive, is so much older than Marcion that Marcion himself once believed it when in the first warmth of faith he contributed money to the church, which along with himself was afterwards rejected when he fell away from our truth into his own heresy. Very, very important. And she, Tertullian, he identifies that, hey, this man Marcion, he was on the right path. In fact, this the statement that he gave all this money to the church, actually what happened is, is Marcion was very wealthy and he gave a substantial amount of money to the church in Rome, to the community in Rome. And they took it. I mean, he was in the faith that everything was fine. And shortly thereafter, he actually fell into his heresy. When that happened, they actually they gave the money back. They didn't want it. They didn't want that money. So, to prove my point is Marcion, he once believed the truth of the gospel just as all the other first century believers did. He was on the narrow path, but he fell away. Well, makes you think of a scripture that Paul talks about and then he warns. And what was that? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Let me tell you something. This is exactly what happened to Marcion. Marcion gave heed to, this, to a deceiving spirit. He gave heed to a, a doctrine of demon, 
of demons, and it literally led him into the land of apostasy. Now, one thing you need to understand about Marcion, and this is very important. If, if you're going to understand the message today, if it's going to hit home, you need to understand this point. Despite Marcion being deemed a heretic, despite him going into heresy, know this. He did not go into another faith. He did not start going and worshiping Baal. He didn't join Mithraism or any of the likes or any other pagan religion during his days. Marcion actually continued to preach Jesus and him crucified. He preached Yeshua is the salvation and that through him we have forgiveness. He didn't go anywhere as it would deem, as you would, as you would think. He stayed the course in his mind to stay true to Christianity. And for many believers today, when we, when we think about departing from the faith and being deemed a heretic, we're prompted immediately to start going to, oh, that person left, the, you know, now he's a Muslim. Or you know, now he got involved in new age. He's looking for something else. The problem with that thinking is that's typically not the truth. That's typically not the truth. Oftentimes, those who depart from the faith actually still continue in the faith in the sense that they're continuing to proclaim Yeshua as Lord according to their understanding, following what they believe to be the sole truth. And therefore, they chart this course and they're attempting to share this truth, this wonderful, beloved truth that has been revealed to them. That's the reality. And such is the situation with Marcion. Marcion continued down that path, proclaiming Yeshua as Lord. But the deceiving spirits that got to Marcion, they led him just a titch askew. They led him to, to teach things that would really bring people into the depths of hell. And what was that? What did Marcion teach? Well, let me share with you some of the things that Marcion taught. Number one, he taught that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. So now we have two gods, all right? That's the first thing, okay? So he taught two different gods. He taught that the Old Testament God, which he deemed as the creator, was the God of the Jews. He called him the Demiurge, okay? He's the God of creation, and what's interesting is Marcion actually said the God of creation is a just God. He's not a good God. The good God is the God of the New Testament who is superior, who reigns over the just God, the God of creation, the God of the Jews. But the God of the New Testament, the God of the Christians, he's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. And it's interesting where Marcion took this because he got into some deeper aspects of this. Uh, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about three heavens and that the third heaven is the unseen heaven. That's where the father reigns and Yeshua at his right hand. Marcion taught that the Demiurge, the God of creation, the God of the Jews actually reigned in the second heaven. He was lower than Yeshua, than the God, than the, the God of the New Testament the God of the Christians reigned in the third heaven. Now, I ask you, when I start talking about that there are essentially two different gods, that there's a separation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the Jews, but the God of the New Testament is the God of the Christians, I ask you, what does that sound like? 
Have any of you heard any of that type of mantra in the church today? And the answer to that question is absolutely. What is dual covenant? What's dual covenant theology? No, 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 the, the, the Torah, the, the, the Old Testament, that, that's for the Jews. The Christians, it's, it's, that's all for the New Testament. You know, that's us. The New Testament is all about us. Let me, let me take this a step further. Did you know that the first canon of Scripture in regard to the New Testament is actually not the one that we have today in our Protestant uh, Bibles? Uh, it was actually Marcion's. Marcion is responsible for creating the first closed canon of Scripture. And if you're not familiar with those terms, what a closed canon is, it means you take a compilation of books and say, this is our life. This is holy. This, these are our instructions. This is what we are to follow. And there's kind of a, a joke in, in the scholarly realm that scholars joke that it, because Marcion was the first one to put a canonized, a closed canon of scripture together, that was actually the result of what we have today. Because the people had to come on the scene and as a response to Marcion's closed canon, they had to come up and start looking at all the letters that they possessed in the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries. And they had to start looking at these things and going, what are we going to deem as absolute, infallible word of God, true instructions for the church? And so they attribute that to Marcion. Just a little side note, uh, interesting tidbit. Well, today you know that we have 27 books in the New Testament and honestly, we could divide that into two sections, right? We could divide the, uh, the, the Tanakh into two or three sections. The New Testament's the same way. We can divide it into two sections. You have the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you also have the letters, all the letters, whether from Yaakov or Kepha or, or uh, Yochanan. And all these people make up the New Testament. Paul himself makes up half, over half of the New Testament. Marcion's Bible is a little bit different. And I'm going somewhere with this. Well, Marcion's Bible is a little bit different. And this is very important that we go through this because I'm setting something up to really kind of reveal something to you. We have four Gospels. Marcion did not. Marcion had one Gospel. He didn't call it by a name like we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, John today. He didn't do that. He actually just called it the gospel. Well, what's interesting is, is Marcion actually took the gospel of Luke that we have today, and boy, did he do some editing. He ripped out the first three chapters entirely, and what was left, he mutilated, according to his own liking. Now, this is very important to understand, because he came under, the Marcionites came under fierce attack the Hamanist attack by strong believers during the day that all had the gospel of Luke. They had it. And then they're looking at Marcion's and they're going, this, is, this isn't right. He's completely mutilated this thing. And he, obviously the first three chapters he's taken out because Marcion didn't believe in the virgin birth. Well, you can't have that. He, he took on a lot of shapes of deist, of, of a deist uh, that, that a deist does. That's just interesting. But I want to read to you Tertullian's commentary on Marcion's Gospel of Luke. This is very important. We'll click the slide. And this is what it says. For if the gospel said to be Luke's, which is current among us, in other words, Tertullian says we all have one, we shall see whether it be also current with Marcion is the very one which, as Marcion argues in his antithesis, 
was interpolated by the defenders of Judaism. In other words, I want you to understand what he is saying. He's actually saying the reason Marcion's mutilated version of the Gospel of Luke looks the way he did is because he went out and said, the Jews have corrupted this document. He was an anti-Semite. He was anti-Jewish. And he said they corrupted, they interpolated, they added things. So it's totally corrupted. You know, people, please listen to me when I say this. When people start coming to you and purporting their theology based upon the fact that they believe that the document is corrupted, like it's filling in the Hebrew roots and the Messianic that our English Bibles, it's a total conspiracy and everything's so mistranslated, it's so horrible, and uh, you could never come to faith, it's just lies after lies. Be very, very careful, because I've seen that spirit before. Yeah, I've seen it in Marcion, and he's not the only one. We could just keep going down the line. Demonic spirits. And Marcion said, well, their version of the Luke has been corrupted because the Jews corrupted it. They're trying to read into it. Interpolate means to read into text, to put things in there that shouldn't have been in there, according to his mind. Let me show you what his Bible looked like. Click the slide. And this is, this is what we see. We have his gospel, which is a mutilated form of Luke. But then we have his apostolicon. And this is Marcion's Bible, his apostolicon. At the head of his apostolicon, interesting, isn't it? The book of Galatians. It's the first one. It received the primary seat in his Bible. And then you have the Corinthians, Romans. He didn't include the last couple chapters. Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And of course, he was always wonderfully generous in the creativity department uh, with his books. I want to ask you a question. Notice anything peculiar about Marcion's Bible. First of all, you're asking yourself, where's the rest of it? Where's the Tanakh? Well, there is no Tanakh. But frankly speaking, where's the rest of the New Testament? Where's the letter to the Hebrews? Where's James' letter? Where are Peter's epistles? Where's John in his revelation? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Anything that was Jewish, that even had even a sense of Jewishness, it had to go. But not just that, he didn't even include all of Paul's letters. You won't find any of the pastoral epistles. Where's Titus? It's not there. Now let me go deeper here. And you need to see the reality of what is going on here. When you look at Marcion's Bible... And you look at the Christian church today and what they base their faith and their theology. If you want to go talk theology with just your average Christian who's caught up in the stuff that David Wilkerson's talking about. They're going to go to the head of the apostolicon. They're going to go to the letters of Paul. They themselves are exclusively hinging on the letters of Paul versus the totality of the word. And is this disturbing? Yes. When you start seeing these eerie parallels that exist between Marcionism and today in the church, you realize Marcionism is alive and well. The same mentality is being applied. This should send chills down your spine. Now, let me be very clear about the Apostle Paul. I, more than anyone, 
will stand to defend him as an authentic apostle. And I pour and have poured over his letters. He is authentic. He was anointed with the Ruach and his words were anointed. There's no issue there. What I'm saying is if we're going to get into talking about theology and doctrine and how we live our lives, it, this does not constitute the Bible. It does in modern day Christianity, but it did not in the first century. Now, obviously, you can ask yourself, well, what, what, you know, Marcy, why does Marcion's Bible look like this? He had an agenda. The evil one has an agenda. He is very crafty at what he does. Let's dig into this even further. Marcion's ideology, so that you understand where he's coming from. And then let's just see if there's any more crazy parallels. I want to take you back to Tertullian and his adversus Marcionem. In book one, Tertullian explains the driving force behind all, uh, all of his heresy. In, in, in other words, the, what, what, what was the thing that made the car run? The flux capacitor, right? That was <laughs> back to the future. The flux capacitor, the thing that gave Marcion his doctrine and how it infected the entire world that gave it its power, Tertullian identified. And what was it? You're looking at it on the screen. The separation of law and gospel is the primary principal exploit of Marcion. Isn't that interesting? The separation, the tearing apart of law from grace. This is what Tertullian has identified. This is the source of his power by which everything else is built upon. His disciples cannot deny this, which stands at the head of their document, that document by which they are inducted into and confirmed in this heresy. In other words, what he's saying, when the Marcionites, when you wanted to become part of Marcion's faith, which is called Christian, okay, he's coming into this faith, you're coming into this doctrine, you must confess this, that there is a separation, there's a dichotomy, that the law is the antithesis to grace. It's the antithesis to the gospel. He goes on and say, click the next slide. He goes on and says this, for such are Marcion's antithesis or contrary oppositions. Now, I just want to stop. Marcion's antithesis, just so you understand what that is, that was his compilation of his writings explaining his doctrine. In other words, uh, Catholicism, they have their catechism. You read it, it's very comprehensive. It explains why they believe what they believe, where they're coming from. You get a clear understanding where the Roman Catholic Church is. And Marcion's, Marcion's writings were the antithesis. And so, and which really means uh, um, literally opposition. Okay? So these contrary, contradictions. So contrary oppositions, and listen to what Tertullian says here, which are designed to show the conflict and disagreement of the gospel and the law, so that they may argue further for a diversity of gods. Unreal. This is his whole goal, is to tear the grace away from the law. This perfect, harmonious thing that existed in the first and second century, Marcion came to destroy. That is his primary exploit. Let me explain something to you. This, is, this concept is so powerful. Listen to me carefully. If you can successfully 
go forth and rip the Torah from the gospel. If you can create this dichotomy between the two, do you understand that the sky is the limit? Anything can happen. Divorce rates in church can be as high as they are in the world. It can happen when you separate the law from the gospel. Pastors can engage in adulterous affairs and go to the pulpit the next Sunday. It can happen when you separate the law from the gospel. Churches can start running their churches like corporations. The sky is the limit. Anything goes. You can change the Sabbath. You can arbitrarily just start changing commandments. You can start eating things that are unclean. It's all game. You separate the law from the gospel. There's nothing the adversary cannot accomplish. We cannot allow it. Now, continuing on, let's click the slide. Tertullian says this, Therefore, as it is precisely this separation of law and gospel, which has suggested a God of the gospel, other than in an opposition to the God of the law. It is evident that before that separation was made, that God was still unknown, who has just come into notice in consequence of the argument for separation. And so he was not revealed by Mashiach, who came before the separation, but was invented by Marcion. And highlight that part. Invented by Marcion. All from his mind. Don't think he was operating on his own. There's demonic influence. This was purely demonic. Going on, we click the next slide. Marcion, who set up the separation in opposition to that peace between gospel and law. Highlight that. The peace between gospel and law. This is proof. Here we are in the second century, and Tertullian's telling me there is harmony, there is shalom between law and grace. There's a relationship. Not so much today. Which previously, from the appearance of Mashiach, until the impudence, meaning the arrogance, the audacity of Marcion, had been kept unimpaired. No one had ever messed with this. To this degree, to this level, no one had ever seen it before. We continue on in the next slide. And unshaken by virtue of that reasoning, which refused to contemplate any other God of the law in the gospel than that creator against whom after such a long time by a man of Pontus, separation has been let loose. Highlight that. Separation went forth. The separation of law and gospel through Marcion. You understand when I say, go back to that statement, something unprecedented happened in the second century. The gates of hell were opened upon the church. And Satan came in like a flood. And it was all through this man, through Marcion. You want to talk about an antichrist figure. He is it. There's an interesting story about Marcion and Polycarp. Polycarp was uh, another first century uh, early church father and uh, actually said to be an actual disciple of John, the apostle. And Polycarp, he was the bishop of Smyrna, one of the seven churches we read about in Revelation. And it's said that Marcion traveled to Rome, or Polycarp traveled to Rome. And as Polycarp was walking around Rome, 
Marcion was on the street there. And Polycarp was just going to go walk by and not even acknowledge him. But the story goes, Marcion cried out to Polycarp. And he said, Polycarp, recognize me. In other words, recognize who I am. The things that I'm saying, recognize me in the faith. And Polycarp's response was, I recognize you, Marcion. You're the firstborn of Satan. The firstborn of Satan. Let that sink down into your mind. That statement of being the firstborn of Hasatan and what he was responsible for and what they knew he was responsible for. Just to give you an idea of how impactful Marcion really was, Tertullian makes a special comment about how successful his ideology was upon the faith. Click the slide. And he, Marcion, found it easy to argue for a new and hitherto unknown divinity revealed in its own Christ. And thus, with the little leaven, has embittered with heretical acidity the whole mass of the faith. Highlight it. The whole mass of the faith was actually infected by this cancer, this doctrinal cancer. You look at the church today, you see the effects of Marcionism. You see it crystal clear. The devil's grace is being preached. It's affecting the whole mass. Churches all over the world willingly choose, and they glory in their shame. They willingly choose to reject the law of God and pretense that they're under the grace. Apparently, to the church, and in the eyes of many believers, the law has no value. There's no value there for it. That's why they're not reading it. That's why we have Bibles that just have the New Testament. And why do they believe that there's no value? Because Hasatan has come in and told them it's worthless. It's totally worthless. I'm going to tell you something. You fear God. You serve Yeshua of Nazareth. You read his word. With fear and trembling, you seek it out. And you seek to apply it right? And, and think about this. It's profitable for doctrine, for my theology, for reproof, for correction and instruction and righteousness. And don't let anyone tell you different. Going to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read the following. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now that's amazing. Paul in the first century early on, he's already seeing a glimpse of it. He's already seeing things that are happening. He goes, lawlessness is starting to move. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, and highlight this please, and then the lawless one. Understand the Antichrist figure, he's identified as something. Lawless. His title is the Torahless one. Is this the faith that you want to follow? where they're telling you to do away with the law, to run away from the law, that it's a curse. Don't go back to it. You'll never be saved. Absolutely not. And I continue to read. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Moving on to verse 9. 
Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, let me point out a couple things. Number one, your law is truth. Psalm 119, 142. Psalm 119, 151. All your commandments are truth. And because what Paul's articulating here, because the people of the land, because the people of the church rejected the commandments of God, they're given over to a state of delusion. They become delusional. They think they're on one path and they're on a completely other. How scary is this? Jeremiah 23 Verse 16, we read the following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about the church. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. Haval in the Hebrew, it's total vanity. Your life will totally become vain in the living God. You will become worthless if you listen to them. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 17. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said and highlight this, you shall have peace. And everyone who walks according to the dictates of their own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. Think about that. What is happening today? The prophets prophesied about to beware of. The church is telling you, you can live like hell and go to heaven. You will have peace. You don't need to listen to the law. It's fine. Don't worry about holding on to that bitterness. It's okay. You're under grace. God paid that penalty for you so that you don't have to do it. You start thinking about the cleverness and how vile and how ruthless our adversary is. He loathes you. He loathes the fact that you call upon the one true one, Yeshua of Nazareth. And he's coming at us with everything he's got. He's not holding back at all. I want to close with this passage. I want, to, I want you to see the full gospel out of Yeshua's mouth. In John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The first thing I got to tell you, what is Yeshua talking about? His sacrifice. His ability to give us life. He laid willingly. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. He willingly comes to pay our penalty. And he does this for his friends. Now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Okay, so he comes to die and to pay the penalty for a group of people. His friends. Who are his friends? Those that love him and keep his commandments. That's the full gospel. This is where we need to be. How precious and powerful is that message? It will save. It's the saving of the soul. 